Brake Fix's History of Motorsports series is brought to you in part by the International Motor Racing Research Center, as well as the Society of Automotive Historians, the Watkins Glen Area Chamber of Commerce, and the Argetsinger family. I'm always a big sucker for the story where the small town guy makes it in the big time. And our featured speaker today is that quintessentially. I'm also a big fan if the small town guy happens to be from this area. And by this area, I mean southern New York, northern Pennsylvania. Mr. Post is a guy who, as a kid, grew up on the dusty bull rings of Five Mile Point Speedway and Pencan Speedway. And once the small town guy who made good is a fellow that I know, that's pretty much the trifecta for me. I've known Steve now for probably close to 25 years, I think. He was a tremendous guy then. He is a tremendous guy now. It's taken us three years to get him here, in part because he just has such a crazy, crazy schedule. And what I'm most happy and what I think you guys are going to be really interested in hearing about, you're going to hear about NASCAR and drivers and all of that cool stuff. But this is really Steve's personal journey. This is really the story of a guy from Halstead, Pennsylvania, who made it to the big time. There's eight people that announced for Motor Racing Network, and Steve is one of them. Small town guy who made it on the big stage, local guy who made it on the big stage, and a guy I know personally. That's it for me. I'm going to introduce Mr. Steve Post. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming. Steve? All right. Thanks, Kip. Thank you. As Kip has talked about, it has taken about three years to put this together, and I'm really shocked that Kip would want to put it together. As he mentioned, we've known each other about 25 years, and Kip did bus tours. And I recall one of the early bus tours we did was a group from the Wego Racing Fan Club. We went to New Hampshire. And the shocking part that Kip would have me back is because I was surprised he let me on the bus to return from New Hampshire. Back in the day, I enjoyed frosty cold beverages. And in many cases, I enjoyed multiple frosty cold beverages. So we're riding in this bus trip to New Hampshire, and this was when Stroh's beer introduced the 30-pack. Huh, are you kidding me? 30-pack of beer. So I break out a 30-pack on our bus trip to New Hampshire. We get to New Hampshire, we park across the street, and over into the racetrack is six lanes of bumper-to-bumper traffic. So we're playing Frogger, trying to get to the traffic. I have what I'm taking into the racetrack of my Stroh's 30-pack in one of those really handy styrofoam coolers with a nice string handle on it. I get halfway through playing Frogger in the six lanes of traffic, the handle breaks, the cooler hits the ground, and beer goes everywhere. Well, not wanting to waste the investment in the beer, I do the best thing that I know what to do, and I pull my shirt, and I'm rounding up beer cans while all the cars are tooting their horns, and people are laughing and catcalling, and I probably got six or eight of my beers in my shirt there, and I look up, and here's Kip, over along the fence line, just keeled over laughing, laughing out of just the sheer moment of me trying to round up my beers, laughing out of embarrassment that this is part of his people. (laughs) These are his group, and here we go, one of the finest examples. So first off, Kip, I'm glad you let me get back on the bus to return from New Hampshire. And I do appreciate being here. And I'm glad everyone has joined us here on this snowy, frosty day. So the story kind of starts like this. And it starts with an announcer. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dusty Doyle welcoming you once again to Five Mile Point Speedway, your home speedway of the Southern Tier. I was a little kid 
And my life and my passion began every Saturday night with those words. Dusty Doyle, Five Mile Point Speedway, going to the races with my father. And I loved being at the racetrack. And I loved listening to Dusty Doyle announce races. The Dusty Doyleisms that were out there. When a car came off from turn number two, he would go up, 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 up the backstretch. And you know that he was making time. He may or may not have been, but Dusty Doyle sold you. That car is going into turn number three faster than any car in the history of Five Mile Point has ever gone into turn number three. One of my favorites is a mysterious character named Andy. We're under caution. We're coming through turns three and four, ready to go green. And the phrase was, Andy, let him go. We all wondered who Andy was. The flagger was not Andy. The flagger was Joe Winterstein. Who's Andy? But every time we'd go green, Andy, let him go. And there is actually a Facebook name, Andy, let him go, out there now, in tribute of Dusty Doyle. The Dusty Doyleisms that were so much fun, when the heat race would roll out and there was 13 cars, he would say two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, and another car because it's not good luck to say 13 at the racetrack. It was always that. And when we did that moment at the beginning of the night, ladies and gentlemen, Will you please stand? Let's remember who we are, what we are, and where we are for one stanza of our national anthem. Dusty Doyleisms, an announcer that had a passion for racing, a guy that I never met, but a guy that had such an impact on me along the way. My roots in racing go back actually before I was born. My father, who is father of ever, I wouldn't put him a year or decade, my father was a mechanic. There was a racer in New Milford, Pennsylvania named Buzz Gulick, and Buzz's grandson still races along the way, but Buzz Gulick raced locally at Pencan, and my dad was a mechanic on his car before I was born. Dad decided at some point that raising a family, and they were doing some horse showing and some other things, that maybe it wasn't compatible with working on a race car, so he decided he was going to take the family and take us to races, and that's what we did. We went to races virtually every night of my childhood along the way. It was an amazing childhood. It really was, and we would go Saturday nights to Five Mile Point Speedway. Pencan was our Friday night track, but in that era, in the early 70s, Pencan was very hit and miss. Some year one club was running it, another year another club was running it. They'd start in May, they'd end in August, they'd start in August, they'd end in September. It was very hit and miss. So a lot of my memories were from Five Mile Point Speedway down in the Binghamton area, and so many great memories. We think about racing and we talk about racing now, and one of the bygone events that we used to have in racing that I don't see too much of anymore are kiddie rides. We don't seem to see that too much anymore. I think they're important because I remember riding in Wally Locke's J10 car at Five Mile Point Speedway, and that's 45 years ago. I remember climbing in and sitting on the side rails and the rumble of Red Harrington's Modified. It was 45 years ago. I remember kiddie rides. I remember at Pencan, you'd line up along the fence and a car would pull up and you didn't have a choice who you were getting. I got the chance to ride with Mike Colston in his car. The flagger threw us all in the back of it and we went into mud up to our knees riding with Mike Colston. And I remember those moments, those kiddie rides, those moments 45 years later meant so much to me that developed this passion of racing. Grew up going to Five Mile Point, we would sit on the backstretch. We would sit over in turn number three, there was a barrel down at the end of the back straightaway, and we would stand on, it was a big water barrel, big long water barrel, and we would stand on it. David Brush, one of my friends, he was the shortest guy, so he would stand in front. I'd stand next, my brother John would be there, whoever else, we would all kind of fall into line, and we would watch bigger than life names wheel cars around a racetrack. Guys with a name like Chuck Akulis and Carl Bubby Nagel. 
How about that name? Man, there is a great, great race car driver. Old Bones, Dave Kneisel. Wow, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. Kneisel Speed Sport. Man, there's not a cooler guy on the planet than Dave Kneisel. Frankie Mears used to come up. That was the kid. That was a protege of Dave Kneisel. And Frankie Mears, he could roll a race car around a racetrack. Larry Callen from down in Waverly. Turquoise number 88 coupe. What a beautiful race car. He won a lot of races in that number 88 coupe car. Toughest guy in the world in the history of all of motorsports to pass. This is no offense to Dave Marcus and no offense to Ryan Newman, but if you pass Gordy Isham at Five Mile Point Speedway, you really accomplish something. I ran into years ago Andy Belmont, who raced in the Arca Series, and I ran into Andy down at Daytona talking about the Arca Series, and I said, hey, I'm from Five Mile Point Speedway, and he says, I'm telling you what, he says, I lost 15 years of my life trying to pass Gordy Isham. And those were the heroes, those were the racers, those were the big names that we loved, those were the big names that we followed along with. My first recollection of a race, and I appreciate there's a Facebook group, I went on there a couple of weeks ago and asked, and I think I've got the dates on this right, would have been 1971, would have been the Spring 100 or Miller Dodge 100 at Five Mile Point, and a guy by the name of Pete Cordes scored the win in that race. Blue number 68, bigger than life, Pete Cordes. Waldron's floor covering on the race car, and Pete Cordes won that race. Being that was maybe my first memory, that became my guy. I was a Pete Cordes man, eight years old. I was six years old when I first saw that race, but I was a Pete Cordes guy. My dad, he liked Bubby Nagel. My brother was a Chuck Akulis guy. David Brush, he liked Dave Kniesel. I was all in for Pete Cordes, and I loved watching Pete Cordes race a car. Pete Cordes, my hero as a childhood, bigger than life, and I just loved watching Pete Cordes score and race cars around Five Mile Point Speedway. Away from the racetrack, my life was all about racing as well. I would take little matchbox cars and line them up around a carpeting or on the floor, and I would announce races. I could say the same things that Dusty Doyle said. I could say the same things that Cal Arthur over at Pencan or Jimmy Bevins at Pencan would say. There is no way in the world I could sound like Jack Burgess's voice ringing through the fairgrounds at the State Fair in Syracuse. I would do anything in the world to hear Jack Burgess's voice ringing through the fairgrounds at Syracuse. Sadly, Jack is no longer with us. And even Saturday is at that fairgrounds, they tore that thing down and it's just unreal. But all of the voices that I would listen to, and I love the way they described races. Joe Murata had some great, great lines. I love Joe Murata. I could listen to Joe Murata call a race. Roy Sova, a friend of mine up at Oswego Speedway. And I love the way announcers called the race. And it was a passion of mine. And those little matchbox cars, I would use Dusty Doyle's lines and Joe Murata's and Jack Burgess's lines. And I would love that. Another part of my childhood was on Thursdays. When all the other kids were riding bikes or climbing trees or in the creek playing or doing whatever, I would sit by the mailbox waiting for the Gator Racing News to arrive. Gotta get a Gator. Oh, I lived for Thursdays when that Gator, I would tear into that and I knew the next hour of my life was reading through, taking me places that I had never dreamed I would go to see. Gotta get a Gator. And I'm telling you, Pete the Mailman, that poor guy... When that gator didn't arrive on Thursday, you want to talk about a kid walking back in the driveway cussing out a mailman. I was that kid cussing out Pete the mailman when that gator didn't arrive on Thursday. Saturday afternoons, the ritual in the family was me sitting on the front porch where I lived between Halstead and New Milford. You could see both Highway 11 and Highway 81. And there they would go. The Kniesel Speed Sport Hauler with Dave Kniesel headed to Five Mile Point Speedway. Oh, we knew we were in for it then when Dave Kniesel was going to be there. There goes Norm Norton. There goes Doug Holgate going up there. And I would sit there and I would check off who's all going to be at Five Mile Point that night. Oh, my gosh. There goes Dick Longstreet. 
in his late model, that number 97 late model. You know what that meant? When Dick Longstreet was running late models, it was a race for second. That guy had more bounties on him than anybody in the world. And I would sit there on that porch on Saturday afternoons. And then we'd have those rainy Saturday afternoons where I'd sit there and watch the cars go up and I'd sit there and one would go the other way. And I was in complete denial as a kid. Oh no, the car must have broke down. Oh no, 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 there's no way. And when that second car went by and the third car went by, I lost my mind. I'm telling you, you want to talk about a little kid having a tantrum. I am telling you, I was done because we weren't going to the races because the stupid weather had rained us out on Friday nights or Saturday nights at Five Mile Point. That was my young childhood. Along the way, we always went to the races and along with elementary school and then in middle school and into high school school. And I think the first Saturday night, we would miss some along the way because I am telling you, my father, what a wonderful man. The only time we would miss races is when we were in Canada fishing. So we would go to Canada fishing trips and that would cause us to miss some races. But the only planned miss that I had, that I ever scheduled something else, was my junior prom. Oh man, I'm going to the junior prom. My brother let me have his car, really cool car. Wendy Hine was going to be my date along the way. I was going to go to the junior prom. Yeah, I was sad I was going to miss five mile point, but you know, it's the junior prom. It was a disaster. I hated the junior prom. I had no fun at all, and I felt sorry for poor Wendy Hines stuck with me at the junior prom. So much so that the night of my senior prom, while everyone else was borrowing brothers' cars and wearing nice clucks, I was in the car headed back to Five Mile Point Speedway, where I belonged, and I spent my senior prom at Five Mile Point Speedway. I loved racing as a kid. And I mentioned my father, we would go on road trips. We'd go to Fonda. We went up there one time. We went to Albany, Saratoga. Went to Lebanon Valley. And one of the great trips we would go on every year is Labor Day week. Weekend. We would load up Bob and Ella Darrell, mom and dad, all of us kids, and we'd get a place somewhere up on Lake Ontario. Friday nights, we'd go to Rolling Wheels. Saturday nights, we'd go to the Bud 200 Modified Race at Oswego. We did a little bit of asphalt racing. We'd go to Shangri-La a little bit, and boy, but the Bud 200, we were regulars there. We love going to Oswego for the Bud 200. We'd go to Weed Sport on Sunday night, and on Monday, Coming back, we would go to the New York State Fairgrounds. While kids were running to the cotton candy stands, while kids were running to do rides, while other kids were running to do this or listen to that or see that, this guy was a beeline to the ticket window because we were going in to watch the Labor Day Classic at the New York State Fairgrounds, and we did that many, many years. What a wonderful, wonderful weekend of racing with the family, and it is something that I cherish forever. One of our other favorite events was the Northeast 150 up at Weedsport. We'd go up there and we had our Pete Cordezes and our Chuck Akulis and our Carl Nagels. The beauty of the Northeast 150 is that we would see Carl Nagel racing against Will Kegel. Oh my gosh, Wiley Will Kegel, the Tampa Terror. I read about him in Gator Racing News and here he is in front of me. Dave Lape, he built his own race cars, Lapco chassis. Oh my gosh, Dave Lape, what a legend. Jumpin' Jack Johnson, kid AJ Slideways, Magic Shoes Mike McLaughlin. So I'm sitting there and it's overload for a kid. You've got Will Kegel and Carl Bubby Nagel and Dave Kneisel and Pete Cordes and Alan Johnson and just overload for a kid. It was the Northeast 150. Man, what an experience. We did that a number of years and all of those were great, but our favorite event, and actually I was just talking to dad about it a couple of weeks ago, was the Eastern States 200 down at Orange County Fairgrounds, Middletown, New York. Man, that was it. That was, that was big time. 1978, we watched a man by the name of Lou the Monk Lazaro win that race. Lou Lazaro, while everyone is rolling in with nice trailers with wheel racks, Lou Lazaro would roll into a track with a flat trailer pulled by a station wagon with tires in back of the station wagon and a dog is the only person with him. He would roll into the racetrack and you know what would happen? He'd whoop everyone's butt. 
Lou the Monk Lazaro. I watched him win the 1978 Eastern States 200. Man, what a memory. 1979. Oh, it was a fluke. No way this could have happened. The Eastern States 200, 1979. The kid got lucky. Oh, the ki- he was not Will Kegel. He was not Buzzy Rudiman. He was not Frankie Schneider. He was not Lou Lazaro. Some kid by the name of Brett Hearn won the Eastern States 200. Oh, what a fluke. That is never going to happen again. Well, it happened 10 more times. <laughs> Brett Hearn, kid, but I watched him win his first Eastern States 200. Maybe my favorite, 1980. Oh, just the name sends chills. Just the names. Kenny Brightbill. Oh, I don't know if any of you remember Kenny Brightbill. I am telling you, still around, still doing stuff, raced up to a few years ago, and uh, every once in a while, I think he still climbs aboard a race car. Kenny Brightbill on the side of the car, on the side of the hauler. Brightbill Donkey Farms. We haul ass. Yeah. And I'm telling you what, Kenny Brightbill, and it didn't matter where he went, he hauled ass. That guy could wheel a race car. Later got to meet Kenny Brightbill, and the first thing I noticed about him was when he shook my hand, he shook my forearm. His hand was so big, he would grab you. His fingers were at your elbow and your hand, your palm to palm. Just an amazing guy. Kenny Brightbill. I watched him win the Eastern States 200 in 1980. And I guess the point that I'm getting at is, is it's no mystery how I ended up where I ended up because I had the best childhood that any kid could ever have. Going to the racetrack, watching heroes, going to the pits afterwards and meeting your heroes. My dad was buddies with Eddie Rafferty. Eddie Rafferty showed up at my house one time. Oh my gosh. I mean, this was an amazing childhood that I have. And I'm so blessed with my mom and dad. They are just so amazing and we did so much together. My mom and dad were school bus contractors. In Pennsylvania, the bus contractor, the school districts would contract with individuals. It wasn't like New York State where you where the school district owns all the buses and they just hire people to drive them. In Pennsylvania, they contracted with the people. So mom and dad had the same schedule we did. So our summer times, when we weren't at the races, we were in Canada fishing. And just a blessed childhood, an amazing childhood that I had. And I'm just so thankful to have been raised in turn number three at Five Mile Point Speedway and going to all those races. Graduated from Blue Ridge High School in 1982. And I had this really weird, awkward, backward misconception of what a career needed to be. Somewhere, I got twisted up that you never let your passion become your career because you could then learn to hate both of them. And that, I am telling you, is the most faulty premise on the planet, okay? I lived my life for a number of years thinking I don't want racing to be my career because I don't want to hate. And I don't know where that came from. I know it didn't come from my parents. I'm not sure where it came from, but I had this premise. So I go off, I get accepted at Penn State University, and I am going to be an accountant. Yes, I'm going to be an accountant, and I'm going to go to the races on the side. So I roll through my freshman year and my sophomore year, and I'm at Penn State Hazleton, and I go to my junior year at the main campus and the big accounting 401 class. This is the Mac Daddy of all accounting classes. This is the one, man. This is the one. This is going to set me up for life. And I'm sitting there at night in the library or in my room doing the homework. Oh, my God, I hate this stuff. Oh, my God. Let me just get this homework done so I never have to see this stuff again. Have they lost their mind? I'm going to sit here and do this? And all of a sudden, it struck me. It's like, wait a minute, dude. This is your major. This is what you proclaimed that you wanted to do. 
And so I was in the Smeal School of Business at Penn State and had this right-hand turn and made the decision at that point to go into marketing because marketing was more people-oriented, accounting was more numbers-oriented. So I got out of that, but I still lived under this mindset that I didn't want to work in racing. I wanted to work somewhere and just have racing be this passion and be this hobby. Along that time period, it was 1984. July 22nd, 1984, between my sophomore and junior year, made my first trip to Pocono Raceway. The Like Cola 500 for the Winston Cup Series. And you want to talk about heroes bigger than life. Harry Gant beat Cale Yarborough. Cale Yarborough and Harry Gant. I used to watch those guys in February in the Daytona 500 with Ken Squire calling the races. I'd run home from church and hear those guys, and here they were at Pocono Raceway right in front of me, racing and watched Harry Gant win the race down at Pocono, beating Cale Yarbrough. Bill Elliott, I think, was third in the race. And all of these bigger-than-life TV guys were right here in front of me, right here close to home. Rolled through the balance of my college career. When I arrived in my senior year, did all of the traditional interviews for sales jobs, all the marketing interviews you would do, and nothing was really happening. And I kind of poked around and said, well, maybe I'll just dabble in this racing a little bit. And reached out to Pocono Raceway, reached out to Five Mile Point Speedway. And soon after that, in fact, that ironically, I think the phone call or the mail or whatever it was, we didn't have email back then, that all came about on the same day where Bob Plevin at Pocono Raceway was going to allow me to volunteer to work in the press room staff. Wow, man, I'm telling you what, I'm Cale uh, Yarborough and Harry Gant and Richard Petty, I'm going to be right there well, rubbing shoulders with them. My gosh, we're, hey, we're going to be hanging out together. So I got hired, hired being an interesting term when you're really offered to volunteer at Pocono Raceway, and then Jim Randall was the promoter at Five Mile Point Speedway at the time. And Jim offered me to do PR and to find sponsorship. And I'm not sure, I think Jim was paying me $35 a week or something like that. I mean, it was, for where I was at, it was great. So graduated from Penn State in 1986, and that summer I actually worked at Five Mile Point Speedway, $35 a week, worked at Pocono Raceway for free. We're sitting at Five Mile Point Speedway, and in comes a pace car. The Reverend Brother Pat Evans shows up. Now, there's a character. Some of you know Pat Evans. Some of you have heard of Pat Evans, and Pat was a racing minister. He showed up, and he recruited me to be a columnist for Speedway Scene Newspaper. Oh, my gosh. You want to talk about having it all. I mean, I had it all. I was going to Pocono, doing the cup stuff. I was at Five Mile Point doing the dirt stuff, and now I was a columnist for Speedway Scene. Oh, my gosh. Well, the reality set in. In about September... The $35 a week that Five Mile Point was paying was only during the race season. And that was going to be thin along the way. And I needed to find a job. Got a job in the marketing and sales field because, again, I'm still subscribing to this racing on the side. Got to have a career that's not racing. And I got a job at Warehouse Carpet Outlets. They're now based in Endwell. I was actually in the Ithaca store for about three or four months. And then in 1988, made the move down to the Endwell store. 1987, started working in Endwell with Warehouse Carpet Outlet. 1987, a couple of different things happened to me on the racing front. Made the move from Speedway Scene to Gator Racing News as a columnist. Just became dear friends with Norm and Donna and Joe and Susie Patrick and just wonderful people with Gator Racing News and another one of those entities we have that is no longer around. But became a columnist there, just a sheer numbers thing and so much easier to get my stuff to Syracuse than it was up to Massachusetts. But something happened in 1987 in local racing in the southern tier in northeastern Pennsylvania that would alter my life and alter the course of racing. It was June 26th of 1987, and a new guy had come into Pencan Speedway. 
He was a new old guy. As 1987 started to unfold, different people would say, did you hear Ricey's coming back to Pencam? I'm like, Ricey? Who's Ricey? Who's, who's Ricey? Seward Rice, he was the club president for the Susquehanna County Stock Car Club in the early 1960s, and from all accounts, he was the man. He was beloved. They thought he did a great job. The club had more money than they ever had before, and Seward Rice was the club president. Ricey worked at a foundry in Halstead, Pennsylvania, the Halstead Foundry, and the Halstead Foundry shut down. And he was looking for work. Driving up 171, his old buddy Pappy Bevins owned Susquehanna Pencan Speedway. Charlie Bray, the previous promoter, had shut it down the year before, and the track was sitting vacant. And on June 26th, Seward Rice took over and started promoting races in 1987 at Pencan Speedway. And over the course of that time, I got to know Seward over the course of that year, still working at Five Mile Point. As we got acquainted and got into the offseason, the next year, Ricey wanted to hire me to be the assistant announcer to Cal Arthur. Oh, my gosh. Assistant announcer to one of my heroes. What an opportunity. And in 1988, I went to work as an assistant announcer for Cal Arthur. And I also went to work doing some PR and some sponsorship stuff for Seward Rice. And I learned so many great lessons watching the way Seward Rice operated. He was one of those rare promoters that would walk the pits after the races. Promoters never walk the pits after the races because you don't want to hear all the pissing and moaning and complaining. Promoters don't walk the pits. Seward Rice would walk the pits. And I'll never forget... One of my favorite driver's meetings in the history of driver's meetings. Early August, it's hot. We've been there every Friday night. Everybody hates everybody. Nobody wants to be there. We all want to be there because we all like racing, but everyone's tired. I'll look at you cross-eyed and you'll take my head off. And Ricey calls the troops in and he had a big baritone voice. And he said, gentlemen, we're all tired. We're all hot. And we're all really bothered by it. You've been racing here, and this guy's ran into you, and my flagger did this to you, and my handicapper, Casey Cole, he put you back here. Casey's right there. He put you here, and you feel like you've been screwed, blued, and tattooed. And we're all sitting there, what in the world is this? He said, your crew members, they've been working all year. They've been sweating. You've hollered at them. They've hollered back at you. The officials, they've told them to push the car here. We're doing this. You got screwed by this guy. Your crew members, they feel like they've been screwed, blued, and tattooed. And all of a sudden, this is starting to unfold. He said, my employees, they're sick of arguing with you. They're sick of working in the kitchen up there, flipping burgers in 90-degree weather. They're sick of parking cars, and they're sick of dealing with security, and everyone's hot, and everyone's miserable. My employees, they feel screwed blued and tattooed and I'll be honest with you I'm about done with all of it as well and I'm feeling screwed blued and tattooed and we're all sitting there it's the only time drivers have ever listened in a pit meeting I'll guarantee you the time they've ever listened and everyone's standing there he says gentlemen let's make a deal we've only got three more weeks of racing let's all just get through it together and get away from each other and we'll all come back next year and I never saw a transition more amongst a field of drivers, employees, everyone. Everyone walked away, and we had three peaceful, wonderful weeks of racing. Ended with a pen can spectacular, and it was just amazing. Ricey, I'm telling you, the guy had a real knack for communicating, and his very first thing was the spectator comes first. I'll never forget the first night back in 87. He took over the track, and he called the driver's meeting, and he said, look, he said, we're in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. There's a few people around here. There's a lot more people in Binghamton, which is 30 minutes away, and a whole lot more people in Scranton, which is 40 minutes away. We need to roll early. We need to be done. We're starting at 7.30. We need to be done by 10.15, 10.30. We need to be out of here so everyone can go do what they wanted to do. Along the way, I became the lead announcer at Pencan, and I knew the starting time was 7.30. We had a gentleman by the name of Millard Hall who sang the national anthem. Quite generally, at 7.28, Millard Hall was singing the national anthem, and we were good. Well, we had one night 
I think Mike Colston flipped on the front stretch. I think we had some kind of bounty to issue to Billy Trigo or something. I don't know. Something. There was all kinds of stuff going on, and we were late. And I looked at my clock. I looked at my watch, and it was 7.34 when I introduced the singing voice of Pencan Speedway, Millard Hall. Well, Seward Rice... White, head to toe, handlebar mustache. He's over in turn number two. He just walked out of the pits, and I saw him. I saw him. Puts the arm down. Like, oh, boy, here we go. I'm in trouble here because I'm four minutes late. First heat race runs. He's down in the infield. He comes across it, and there you're sitting, duck. He's headed my way. He's taking his time, and he's meeting people and kissing babies and talking to tow truck drivers and everything, but he's not veering in any other direction, and it took him about three heat races to get there, and he walks up in the tower, and I was out, announced from outside there, and he walks up, and he just kind of taps me on the shoulder, and he said, uh, let's get out in the office and talk. And I don't even remember. I, I don't know if Leon was my uh, other announcer or someone. Someone else took over the microphone, and we went out in the office, and he said to me, Steve, what time do we start here? And I said, we start at 7.30. He said, what time did we start today? And I said, well, Millard was singing at 7.34. He said, all right. He said, so that's four minutes. I said, yeah. He flips me a sheet of paper and he says, count the names on that paper. And as I'm counting, I realize this is the employee list and everyone's name is there. Probably Grant Buck's name was there and Casey Cole and everyone's name was there. He says, how many is on that list? And it was 50. 50 people. He said, hold on one second. And he radios down to Sandy, his daughter who ran the ticket office, said, Sandy, ballpark, how many people we have here? She's we have about 1,500 people here. And he said, okay. He flips me a calculator. He says, now take your four minutes. He says, and multiply it by 50 people. Now multiply it by 1,500 people. He said, if every one of my employees cost me four minutes, we're out of business. We're done. I don't know how, I don't know what the number was, but it was thousands of minutes. We're done. He said, so my question is the same question I had at the beginning of this conversation. What time do we start? He said, we start at 7.30. And it didn't matter. We could have pestilence. We could have tornadoes. We could have cars on fire the length of the front straightaway. We could have 10,000 people in the stands or two in the stands. It didn't matter. At 7.28, Millard Hall was singing that national anthem. It was just going to happen. But those lessons learned about fans first and his passion for it and all the lessons learned. What a great, great era. What a great time in the late 80s. Also did some work then. I, I got into the radio business overnights at WHWK, the country station down in Binghamton, and did that along the way as well. And then came 1990. Had an opportunity to pick up a second track. Makatech Speedway in Lakeville, Pennsylvania. The Thrill Track. And Thrill Track had something to do with what happened on the racetrack. It had everything to do with what did not happen on the racetrack. I kind of went down for an audition. I'm down here, I'm announcing. And Makatech, you announced at a porch off from the side of it. I, I love announcing outside. I'm not one of these guys who likes to be behind glass. I like being outside where I can hear things. So I'm on this porch, and I'm reading lucky numbers. For a hat, lucky number 765321. And I hear some people cheer, and I say, someone won something. For a t-shirt, 761. The next thing I know, I hear people cheering and screaming and hollering. I get to like the third number, and the place is just losing its mind. I look up. And at the start-finish line, making his way from turn number one to turn number three is a man buck naked. We had a streaker at Makatech on my first night announcing there. Crowd is going wild. I said, well, there's no sense of doing lucky numbers. They don't care about lucky numbers now. Place is going wild. Everyone's losing their minds. So we had a streaker on my first night at Makatech. And as I got done, I said, you know, I think I'm going to like this place. This is entertaining. This is really entertaining. I introduced music to the shows, and I would play some songs along the way. One of the songs that I liked to play was David Rose's The Stripper. Da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, and we all know that's an old song from the early 60s. And so, and I would go, like we'd go to intermission, I'm like, oh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a little break here. And hey, if you feel so inclined, here's a little music, you know? So boom, and I'd hit it. And you know, some fat guy would get up and dance, and everyone, you know, it'd be fun. So I'm sitting there one night, 
and I hear this ruckus as the stripper is going on, and I look down at the start-finish line, and here is this middle-aged woman who is starting to do the dance. And I'm sitting here going, oh, this is fun. Yeah, we're going to have fun with this, you know? Any of you, when you were first driving, ever played chicken in the car? You know, any of you ever played chicken? It soon became obvious that she was ready for a game of chicken. And I wasn't sure. All of a sudden, articles of clothing started to come off. And I'm like, oh, boy, we're entering territory here that I'm not sure we should enter. But I'm game. I'm in. And it became obvious to me she was a little bit more in than I was. So I hit the pause button on the stripper song. She stops. The crowd loses their minds, beer cans are flying at the tower, and all hell is breaking loose at Makatek Speedway because I ruined what was a perfectly good strip tease going to happen at the thrill track at Makatek Speedway. Makatek Speedway, the other thing, and they explained this to me right off the bat, you are a two-sport announcer when you announced at Makatek. You are a race announcer and a fight announcer because they love to fight at Makatek Speedway. The flagger was a guy named Ed Ziga. And to my understanding, Ed Zega liked three things. Flagging races, drinking beer, and fighting. And I'm not sure what the order was. But I do know what the rules were. When a fight would break out on the grandstand, it didn't matter where we were at in the race, the caution would come out. Because it was time for the announcer to start calling the fight. And you start calling the fight. Now, if Ziggy knew the people involved in the fight, the red flag would come out. He'd come down off from the flag stand and join the fight. He loved to fight. And I called many a fight at Makatek Speedway. So much fun. So we were going to clean the place up. We get this security guard, a guy by the name of Clarence. Clarence was very round, big one way as he was the other. He was about five by five. And I think the reason he got the security is he had the shirt, he had a fake badge, and he had some handcuffs. And he worked for free, probably for food in the concession stand. So Clarence is there one night, and Makatek was built on a side hill. And so you stood along in the dirt on the back. So Clarence is standing there watching the races unfold, and this scrawny little guy bounces off from him. Clarence is like, okay, you know, no big deal. And this scrawny little guy bounces off again, and Clarence says, I'm going to have to ask you to stop bouncing off from me. About the third time the guy bounces off from Clarence, it's game on. Now, any other place on the planet, when you have a fat security guy chasing a skinny guy, the first place the skinny guy goes is to the exit. Not Makatek. No, the skinny guy goes right down through the grandstands with Clarence in hot pursuit. Of course, we're there, we're during intermission or something, so I'm all of a sudden going down the front stretch, up through the grandstands with Clarence in hot pursuit, back down through the grandstands, back up. The pits were behind the grandstands. So the guy jumps the fence into the pit area, the whole crowd runs back to the lot and watches, and up through the pit area, and the crew guys are all working on the cars, like, what the hell's going on? And there goes this guy. And finally, he runs through the pits, and out the exit they go with Clarence in hot pursuit. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now that intermission is over, we need to get back to racing. I'm sitting there announcing a race, and 10 minutes later or so, Clarence walks up into the tower just huffing and puffing like you wouldn't believe. He says to me, I caught that guy. And I said, really? I said, man, he put you through the paces. He said, yeah, I ain't ever ran like that in my life. He said, I caught the guy. He says, and you ain't going to believe it. I said, I found drugs on him. I said, whoa. I said, man, that's really, really good. You found, so he found drugs on the guy. He says, yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm announcing or doing something. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do about it? Then he said, well, I'm going to call the state police. I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. And I said, wait a minute. Where's he at? What's going on? And he says, he's handcuffed to a tree, Steve. The modified feature is next. And I'm not going to miss the modified feature. So he's handcuffed to a tree up in the woods. This poor guy goes to the races, has a little weed on him, gets into it with a rotund, he gets caught by the fat security guard, and finds himself handcuffed to the tree while Clarence watches the modified feature. Then he calls the state police. 
Mockatech Speedway, the one and only. I could not do the post-race parties at Mockatech Speedway were unreal. I could not do one half of one night at Mockatech Speedway now, and we would party until sunrise. We would go there. One time at Mockatech Speedway, I was in charge of turning the lights off. Well, I'm telling you, at 10 o'clock in the morning, you don't realize the lights are on. And the guy that ran the track went over there Wednesday night to start grading the track, and the place is lit up all week long because I forgot because we left at daytime. Mockatech Speedway, just some great, great memories, some great times along the way. Career, I'm still selling floor covering. I'd moved to a distributorship, and I moved down to Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And at Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, I hung at a place called The Only Place. And there I made some really, really good friends, Reed Miller and Dick and Phyllis Longstreet. Just dear friends to this day. Unfortunately, we've lost Dick in the last year and a half. Just really, really sweet people. And we formed a car show called Speed Sport Showcase down in Scranton. And I know many of you that had gone to the car show, and uh, we did that. So we had the car show going on. And I'm really thrilled, by the way, stepping forward to hear Tony Frabel and a group are going to put together Speed Sport Showcase again. So the car show returns to Scranton. And I'm just so happy for them. And I do like it. They didn't owe this to me, but they actually reached out to Phyllis and to myself, and I believe to Reed, and asked for our permission to go do it again. And I, I just like that respect that they showed. They didn't have to do it. But I love the fact that there's a car show. So as I'm looking at life here in the early 90s, Speed Sports Showcase, I have a program book that I do at all the racetracks, at the two racetracks I'm at. I'm announcing. I've got all this stuff. I'm writing a column for Gator Racing News. Another group that I was very involved with is the Wego Racing Fan Club. I talked about that a little bit when we were talking about Kip. I was president of the Wego Racing Fan Club, and we just had so many great memories. Life was just rolling along with selling carpeting and the party and the racing and everything else. It was really, really good. Well, at a Wego Racing Fan Club event at Shangri-La down in Wego, I met a young lady. And that young lady would ultimately become my ex-wife. But of course, there was a few steps in between there along the way. And this whole philosophy of your only passion becoming your work was really starting to fail on me because I was spending more time in races and events and social events and Wego Fan Club and Speed Sports Showcase than I was selling carpeting. And the people that I worked for was a distributorship out of York, Pennsylvania. They came and they said, look, we're not telling you to leave, but we're ultimately going to tell you to leave. You need to follow this racing thing, dude. You're spending more time on racing than you're working for us, and we really suggest you do it. Had a lot of things going on, and I had this young lady that I was falling in love with. And so it was like, we better start to think about this. In 1994, started interviewing for some jobs in the NASCAR business. End of 1984, I was hired by a company called McLean Marketing. I was going to be the PR rep for Factory Stores of America with Butch Mock Motorsports and Todd Bodine. Well, what do we do? How do we do this transition? So we hurried up. February 4th, 1995, we decided to get married. We're going to throw together a wedding. And some of you were there, as well as 26 inches of snow on wedding day. This was fraught with a challenge as well, because we were doing all of our friends a favor by saying, we're just going to do a money tree. We want to make it easy for you. We just want to do a money tree. Truth of the matter is, is we needed the money tree to pay for the wedding and to pay for the trip to North Carolina. We have 26 inches of snow. We go through the ceremony and we're getting word that this one's not coming and that one's not coming and this one's not coming. And that's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Beyond all of the feelings we're having of the day is the money tree is going to be dry. We're going to be at the VFW in Halstead, Pennsylvania, and not even be able to pay for the keg of beer that we spent the money on. But the good news is, is the money tree was good. It was enough money to pay for that. We went and we did a family reception at the VFW in Halstead. Then we went and we did a racing family reception at Tigo's Tavern 
in Conklin, another great place, by the way. And then we were staying at the Quality Inn, and of course there's 26 inches of snow. The Quality Inn was right next to a place named Country Bob's. So the third reception was at Country Bob's, and Country Bob's was a place not for the faint of heart. Not a whole lot of proud moments happened at Country Bob's, by the way. But yes, we were there, and my bride at the time actually rode the mechanical bull in her wedding dress on that night in our third reception. Yeah, Casey and Clara, they're, they're remembering that. They're remembering that well. Just an amazing, amazing time. Tigo's Tavern, I gotta, I gotta get off script here a little bit to do a Tigo's Tavern story. Great little bar in Conklin. Tim and Polly Bunsick, they ran it. How ate up we were with racing, okay? The old phrase, you're not drinking a beer unless you have dirt in your beer. We get to the off-season and we know we're facing a long, cold off-season with no dirt in our beer. Polly Bunsick goes over to Five Mile Point and she gets a shovel full or pail full, five-gallon pail, Five Mile Point and clay. I don't know that they've ever seen each other, but whatever the dirt was, and I love Five Mile Point Speedway, but I'm telling you what, the clay content at Five Mile Point Speedway has never been all that much. She went over and she got a five-gallon pail of Five Mile Point dirt and she brings it over and she puts it in little baggies. And she takes and she puts a pinhole in the little baggies and tacks one up above every seat at the bar. You'd walk in, you'd get your draft beer, you'd tap the baggie, and a little five-mile point dirt would fall down. We had dirt in our beer the entire off-season. Now, of course, strangers that would walk in off the street, like, what are these people doing putting dirt in their beer? Lost their minds. But that's just part of life that we had around at that time and just an amazing, amazing adventure. So fast forward, we'll get back to the wedding. I got married on Saturday, February 4th. We made our way to North Carolina. We're getting ready to go to Daytona. I'm going to be Todd Bodine's PR guy. Tuesday morning, arrive back in the office, get a call to go in and meet with the boss. I could tell by the look on his face, this was not necessarily one of those real happy meetings that we were going to have. Steve says, I think I jumped the gun on hiring you. We no longer have the Factory Stores of America account. What I need you to do is take the press kits that you developed, take your business card out of the front of them, box them up, drive up to Charlotte Motor Speedway and deliver them to another agency. Because we're so late in the game, they're gonna take your press kits and go to Daytona. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for, we just got married. We got no money. We got nothing. Uh, Ed McLean, the guy that owned the agency, he was able to take us to Daytona. We did hospitality for Sitco for Speed Week. So we went down to Daytona for Speed Weeks. But it wasn't soon after that that we end up broke in Matthews, North Carolina, which is just outside of Charlotte. Ultimately, to be ex-wife and I, we handled things usually by going to a bar room somewhere along the way. That was generally our way of handling crisis situations. And it was a Tuesday night, and we had a whopping total of $26 to our name. We didn't have enough money to move back home. And I was pretty much committed. I'm going to do this racing thing, even though right now it's looking really bleak. Unemployed, strange city. All of our friends are up in the Binghamton area. We're sitting here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we got $26 to our name. And she's like, what are we going to do? We're crying. We're all upset. We're all everything like that. And I said, well, there's a bar out across the parking lot. They have dollar draft night tonight. We're going to go drink like we own the place. We're going to get up tomorrow morning. We're going to build resumes, and we're going to do like everyone else in America does and find jobs. And that we did. We drank like we own the place, staggered back across the parking lot, got up the next day, and created resumes. Fortunately, she was a travel agent. And at the time, we had travel agents. It's an old career that's no longer around, as Kip can attest to. Very few travel agents around, but at the time, it was a great career. And the good news is, is she landed really, really quickly. I think we, that was Wednesday morning, and she interviewed with a guy that Friday morning. And not only did he hire her to start Monday, but he paid her a little bit in advance because she explained the situation. So we bailed ourselves out of that. I'm left with the dilemma. Do I go back into the floor? covering business in North Carolina, knowing that I'm lying to whoever I'm interviewing 
interviewing with because if I tell them I'm going to be your best salesman in the world and someone in NASCAR comes, I'm going. And so I made up my mind I was going to work for temporary labor agencies. And that's what I did. And I'm not mechanically inclined at all. It's really bad for a guy that works around racing. I mean, I can barely find the dipstick. I mean, the key in the side of the engine, I'm good at that. That's about it. So I get a job with a temporary agency installing heating and air conditioning units. And I often think about it when I drive by those complexes, when it's 100 degrees in August or when it's 20 degrees in July, those poor, poor people, because there ain't no way in the world when I installed those air conditioning units are those things working properly. And there's got to be the worst air conditioning installation job in the world. So we rolled through 1995 with me doing that. Julie being a travel agency. The fall of that year, I was able to get a volunteer job at Charlotte Motor Speedway, working in the press room. And through that was meeting a lot of people. And that really worked out well. And the good news is I came out of that with an interview and in 1996 was hired by Cotter Communications, Square D Company, Philmar Racing with driver Kenny Wallace. Yes, indeed. Well, Kenny Wallace, the Kenny Wallace you see on TV, the Kenny Wallace you see on social media, the Kenny Wallace that you hear laughing in real life is the same Kenny Wallace that I have. Wide assed open. Kenny Wallace. That's who he is. Al Robinson, of course, we all know, or a lot of us know and love Al Robinson. Al was doing PR at Dover. And Al asked if Kenny and I could fly into Baltimore on a Thursday, do a media tour, and then drive up around and go to Dover. So we do that. And we go to all the TV stations and met with a reporter and did all of that. And when you traveled with Kenny Wallace, you were a fast food person. We didn't eat all that well with Kenny Wallace. We were fast food. Well, this day, we were feeling really, really good. We felt like, man, we did a great media event. Everyone's going to be happy. So we stepped up our game we went to subway wow subway restaurant somewhere up around the chesapeake bay we stopped at a subway we walk in places full of people there is a large african-american woman is the sandwich artist that we have and we're going down through and we're getting our sandwich and she says do you want oil and vinegar on your sandwich and kenny said why would i want oil and vinegar on my sandwich and she says that's what aretha franklin's doing and she's losing all that weight Kenny being Kenny, right in the middle of the subway, puts his hands down, and he says to this large, rotund, African-American woman, you like Aretha Franklin? And she says, honey, I love Aretha Franklin. 15, 20 people in the restaurant, four or five people in the line. Kenny Wallace, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. He breaks into a chorus of respect right there. I don't know whether I'm dying of horrified. I- I'm standing there going, this is, I'm his PR guy. I'm supposed to be preventing incidents like this. She drops her fixings and she's dancing. He's singing. The whole place is wondering what the hell's going on. And we're standing here in a subway singing Aretha Franklin songs. Something I never saw and didn't really plan in the whole PR training. There's not a manual on Aretha Franklin songs in a subway. So Kenny gets done singing the song, and she says, so now the question is, do you want oil and vinegar? And he says, I want double oil and vinegar on mine and put it on his too. If it's good enough for Aretha Franklin, it's good enough for us. And out the door we go. Kenny Wallace, what a guy, what an adventure. Your first PR gig, if I would advise anybody on first PR gigs, I would say get a guy like Kenny Wallace because you know you're never going to have a dull moment and never going to have a dull moment as far as that goes. I learned a very valuable lesson during that time period because while Kenny Wallace was a lot of fun, and we had a lot of fun doing media and media and everyone loved him, we averaged about 20 second place finishes. And so when you're running in that position, you don't get a lot of TV coverage. Square D was like, we need to get more coverage. We need to get more coverage. We need more coverage. And I said, I'm trying. I'm talking to the TV people. And I met Benny Parsons. Uh, Benny was always around the Concord area. We'd always see him when we're out to eat and out to dinner. And I met Benny and I said, Benny, man, I'm getting clubbed by my folks here. He said, Steve, we're not going to talk about a guy running in the mid-pack. He said, we're going to talk about the guys up front. He said, I'll do what I can. He said, we're not going to talk about it. 
It was April of 1997, second year with Square D, Martinsville Speedway. Kenny Wallace goes up and puts the Square D forward on the pole position. Like, oh boy, here we go. Game on. We're able to lure ourselves into an in-car camera, and that race for 500 laps at Martinsville, Kenny and Rusty went toe-to-toe for the win. We ended up not winning the race, but we ended up on TV all day long. Every reporter wanted to talk to us afterward. We're standing there. We're an hour after the race, and there's people still wanting to talk and everything like that. I go out to dinner. I get back home Monday. There's people calling, radio interviews. Everyone wants to talk to Kenny. Everyone wants to talk to Kenny. Happy to go out to dinner that Monday night. Ran into Benny Parsons, and Benny said, let me guess, PR man of the year after yesterday, aren't you? says, you're damn right about that, Benny. There's a whole big different world. He says, they ought to be happy with your PR efforts now. I said, yeah, you know, I'm a really good PR guy today. And five days ago, I was a useless PR guy. We learned the value of performance and learned those lessons doing stuff with Kenny Wallace. So I worked on that program for two years with Square D Company. Needed to change. The agency business was changing and was just in a spot where it was time to move on, which is customary in it. And did an interview and got a job doing PR for the IWX Motor Freight team, which was a truck series team. Randy Tolsma was the driver of that truck. And we just had an absolute ball, did team PR for them. Also in 1998, I was able to return to my racing roots a little bit, my announcing roots. I got hired to sit in and start announcing the summer shootout at Charlotte Motor Speedway on Tuesday nights. That's the Legends and Bandolero racing that they have at Charlotte. So 1998, I'm doing team PR for IWX, on the road, traveling with a team, having fun, really having a great group of guys. We were all hanging out, having fun. Tuesday nights during the summer for 10 weeks, able to do the summer shootout. Roll through that a year and a half. I get to August of 1999. Steve Coulter, a man that I have so much respect for, he was the owner of IWX Motor Freight. We get to August, we're in Indianapolis, and it was nothing for Steve to say, let's go have a beer at the bar. And we sat down and had a beer at the bar, and Steve said, I'm a trucking company, and a trucking company really doesn't need a good PR man. Here we go. I know where this conversation is going. Conversation had a little bit of a twist to it, though. Steve said, here's the deal. He said, you're part of the team. You're part of the family here. I want to keep you on board. I'll keep you to the end of the year. So I'm a guy that got a five-month window to get a job why I have so much respect for Steve Coulter. He said, but what I want you to do, he said, I want you to find the right job. He said, don't take the first job. He said, if we get to the end of the year and you don't have anything, we'll talk about next year. We'll figure it out, but find the right job. He says, and I'm with you. He says, use the fax machine, use the printer. You need time off to go interview, whatever you need to do. He said, you're part of the family. You're a great PR guy. I need you with someone who needs a great PR guy, not a trucking company. Then that's what I want for you. Roll along. We get into October, November, and I catch wind that Texaco Haviland is going to uh, have a driver change. Ricky Rudd is going to drive for Robert Yates. Knew the people at the agency, Performance PR Plus, woman by the name of Kimberly Brannigan. Kimberly is the daughter of Dick and Linda O'Brien, formerly with Oswego Speedway. Day before Thanksgiving of 1999, meet with her, and it became just a formality. She says, I need to run this past the owner of the agency. She said, but I'm going to recommend we hire you. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to IWX to the team. So I'll call you by the end of the day. I get done, go up to the race shop, sure enough, an hour or two later, get the call, and I've been hired by them. She said, here's the problem. This is brand new with Ricky Rudd. We're late. We're behind. We don't have a photo shoot. We don't have this. We don't have that. We need to start ASAP. Called up Steve Coulter, and I said, look, I got a gig. Texaco Havlin. It's exactly what you said I needed to do. It's what I need to do. It's what I need to go from there. I said, where do we go? And he says, what do you have to do there? And I said, I got to do this. And I got to do that. And he says, you start Monday down there. He said, as long as you get done what you're supposed to get done for me over the month of December to get everything buttoned up, we're good to go. That month of December, double money, double income, 
because Steve Coulter, the man of his word, kept me through that year. And that month, December 1999, with IWX, we had a bonus program. And the bonus program was a percentage of winnings. And I had this conversation with my wife, and I said, you know, I can't ask for the bonus check. But, you know, I guess technically, because I was with the team all year, I earned it. I had that month of December of 1999, where I was getting paid by IWX, by the Texaco Havilland Polk's Performance PR Plus. And the day after Christmas, got a check for $2,600, my bonus money for Steve Coulter. Just could not believe that someone could, it's fair and it's right, but in our business, that doesn't happen all the time. And what an amazing, and, and, it, and it turns out Steve ends up being part of my story as we go further down the road. 2000 ends up dawning Ricky Rudd. I'm going to be Ricky Rudd's PR guy. Ricky Rudd, classiest guy that I've ever worked for in my life. Straight up shooter. We sat down and met the first time, and he said, what are you responsible for? I said, I'm responsible for media. He says, when media around you be there, he says, you're not my hat carrier. You're not my helmet carrier. You're not in charge of my suit. You're not in charge of anything else. You're hired to do PR with media. You do media. And we got along really, really well. Ricky Rudd, just an absolute pro to deal with. Some amazing PR stuff. We pulled a lot of really good stuff. Ricky cherished the media relationship. He used it to his advantage a lot. He would go do media tours. He was very savvy on it. He had previously owned his own team with the Tide sponsorship, so he certainly knew the value of it and had a great, great run with Ricky Rudd through the year 2000, came close to winning. And in 2001, what was it, June 17th, we roll into Pocono Raceway where I'd got my first gig First volunteer job, we roll into Pocono, Friday afternoon win the pole position, and I'll be darned if Ricky Rudd doesn't go out and win the first race with the Texaco Haviland team, my first race as a PR guy at Pocono Raceway of all places. When you're the PR guy, when you're going to win a race, and especially when you've been snake bit like we had, we had a lot of things go wrong, you have in the truck, you have a hat bag, and that is your victory lane hat bag. But of course, you don't want to be the guy with five laps to go to get the hat bag, because then you jinxed everything. But of course, Pocono Raceway, to get from one point to the other is about 18 miles. There's nothing close at Pocono. So I'm sitting there with five laps to go. It's like, we're going to win this race. And I got to go all the way back to that truck, and then all the way back out to victory lane with that hat bag. So I said, well, okay, I'm not going to get the hat bag. I'm just going to walk back here so the one Ricky brings the car in. So I walked and walked. I didn't want to jinx anything. Four laps to go, three laps to go, two laps to go. I'm just about to the truck as the car's coming off from the third turn at Pocono and the radio just erupts with, yeah, 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 we did it, we did it, you know, and I did that. And I run into the truck and, and Kelly was our truck driver and Kelly literally throws me the hat bag. And I said, dude, he said, I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to be the one to jinx this. I said, I didn't want to walk back here. I didn't want to be the one to jinx it. He says, let's go. And away we went with a hat bag out to victory lane. Had an amazing celebration, amazing first win for Ricky with Robert Yates and Fatback McSwain. And that whole crew did all of the post-race stuff, did all of that needed to be done. And I'm sitting there and I got done and it was quiet. Most of the media had left. It was dark. It was late at night. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to take a walk out to victory lane just to kind of Take this all in to kind of savor it. I walked out into Victory Lane. Victory Lane at Pocono, still the same Victory Lane. It's kind of an oval-shaped area. Over in the corner, someone had left a cooler, one of those little igloo coolers. And I'm like, hmm. Open that cooler, and there was one can of Yingling beer in that cooler. There's no one around. I'm like, I'm technically stealing this beer, but I'm assuming somebody left it. And I sat on the steps and just thought about life, thought about starting at Pocono and standing there in victory lane that day with the first win with an ice cold yingling beer. Man, I'm telling you what, life didn't get much better than that. Get in the car, go back to the hotel, back to the airport, and we're just rolling along. The PR gig with Ricky Rudd with Texaco Havlon was an amazing time. I learned a lot of the lessons with Kenny Wallace about being in the front of the field and being in the mid-pack and where you're at in the pecking order. With Ricky Rudd, we were challenging for championships, winning races, and you just became a really, really busy PR guy. And what an amazing, amazing time it was in life.
as we rolled along, that was 2001. We got our first win. We won at Richmond later that year. We won at Sonoma the next year. But Ricky and Robert were, they were getting ready to have a divorce. Texco Havlin was going to go to Chip Ganassi Racing with Jamie McMurray. And, you know, I started to look at the lineups here. And I said, wait a minute, Ricky's going to the Wood Brothers. And they already have a PR person. Texco Havlin is going here. And they already have a PR person. Robert Yates is going to have one car with Dale Jarrett, UPS, or Ford, whatever it was. It might have been UPS. They already have a PR person. And I'm like, huh. I don't know. This is not working out. And I was working well ahead of the curve and got a chance to talk with David Hyatt, who was then the president of Motor Racing Network. And we had talked before and we'd talked about me doing an audition. And he grabbed me at Pocono, the July race. We'd won the June race. He grabbed me in the July race at Pocono. He says, you still interested in doing an audition for us? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I may be a little bit more interested now than I was before because, and I shared with him, I said, look, my deal's coming to an end and I don't know what it's going to look like. I feel like I'm going to be all right, but I don't know what it looks like. September 13th, 2002, New Hampshire Motor Speedway, Hanging off a billboard in turn number three for a modified race, I did my audition. It was an interesting cast of people in that audition, now that I look back at it. We had Joe and Barney Hall in the booth, which they always did the auditions. Down in turn one and two, Kyle Rickey. In the pits, Ryan Horn, Gary Danko, and I was in turn number three. Probably turned out to be the biggest audition that MRN ever had, because I actually work for Ryan Horn now. He is our production department manager. He oversees the department. Kyle Rickey still works with the network. I still work with an hour. Gary Danko had a few races, so we literally on that audition went four for four and everybody got a gig with MRN along the way. The modified race was kind of funny, a little bit of a side note on the modified race. It was one of those races, I don't know if it rained or was wet or damp or something. Ryan Horn was our pit road guy doing the audition, and we were just mocking a broadcast. This was going to nowhere other than just our little private channel there. This is going to nowhere. Carl Pasterak is uh, one of the modified racers, and Carl wrecked or something broke, and he was really hacked off at NASCAR. So Ryan, being a good little MRN audition pit reporter, runs down, Carl, what happened? Well, the goddamn NASCAR did this, and damn the NASCAR didn't do this, and they didn't do that. NASCAR officials heard it, and NASCAR officials fine Carl Pastriak $500 for something he said on an MRN audition because they thought it was an MRN broadcast and he actually got fined. Later on they amended it because he got into it with an official. They amended it so that he was altercation with an official but actually it was the MRN our audition were the only audition in the history of MRN that resulted in someone getting fined. Just a crazy great memories along the way. So we roll into 2003. I'm going to get this career of a lifetime motor racing network. Here I come. I get my contract, I rifle it open, and the number on the bottom of it is $12,000. Let's see. Wife, two kids, $12,000. That's not going to pay the rent, let alone anything else. But it's the dream job. But it's $12,000. How does this work? How does this work? And I had one of those moments where I reached out to all the relationships I had in the past. I reached out to Performance PR Plus, the agency, and they hired me to do hospitality for DuPont that year. So I ended up doing Jeff Gordon hospitality for 10 or 12 or 15 races. Went back to Steve Coulter with IWX, and I said, look, here's my deal. You know this is my dream job. If I could write a trucking newsletter for you, if I can do whatever it is. He said, well, we still have the team. I don't need full-time PR. He put me on a retainer. Did that. Knew the folks at Concord Speedway. Hired to do that. Another one, that, and, and we was chatting earlier, L.W. Miller, Wayne Miller, from down in Dushore, LW was racing in the Modifieds down there. And I had done some work up here with LW and I reached out and I said, guys, I just need a favor. I've got a dream job here with MRN, but it only pays $12,000. I need some help to get to the next level. And everybody that I had formerly worked for contributed something that year. 
and it was an amazing year. Next thing I know, I'm juggling projects, and I'm flying here, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and trying to invoice people, and trying to remember, did I do this, and did I do that? Along the way, also, the summer shootout gig at Charlotte Motor Speedway had moved into the big track, so I was the voice of Charlotte Motor Speedway for a few years, and for the years 2003 and 2004, it was very, very part-time, the MRN stuff was. It was 16 races, I think it was in 2003, and I'll never forget that first race. It was March 14th of 2003, the Craftsman 200, NASCAR our Craftsman Truck Series at Darlington Raceway. My first race at MRN was at Darlington. Now, that's pretty stinking cool. I don't care who you are. That was pretty cool. So we're there and I'm gung-ho. I've done research on every guy that has ever ran in the Truck Series. I know more than anybody ever needed to know about the Truck Series. I am so gung-ho and so ready to go. And there was a young kid from Missouri by the name of Carl Edwards in that race. And Carl was his ninth truck series start. And he was driving for Jack Roush. It was his first year of his big opportunity. We're running in March, so it was early season. Might have been the second or third race. What we had is Carl's truck was overheating midway through the race. And the signal with MRN is we would just point, we would see the driver, get the driver's attention as he's sitting in the truck. He would motion you in or tell you no, and that's fair. And that's the kind of the signal we have. They pushed the truck off from pit road on the front stretch. What we had was an announcer that was really, really anxious to get that. That interview. I was going to get Carl Edwards. Well, what we had was Carl Edwards, who was like, I'm going to get the chance to talk on MRN. This is great. Point of the mic flag, Carl calls me in. In hindsight, looking at it, it was pretty stupid because the crew was still working on the truck. I go in, Carl, what happened? What put you out? Put the microphone into Carl. The next thing I know, I'm picked up by a crew member, told to get the hell out of the way. They pick me up and they're pushing the truck back to the garage area. And I did my first in-race interview with MRN, being carried by a crew member through the garage. Well, Carl's getting his first MRN interview, so he ain't letting up. He's thanking his dad, his mom, his mima, his papa. He's thanking everybody. And we're rolling across the interview, and there's crew guys, and I'm hanging out of the roll cage, and I'm getting carried, and my feet are dangling, and I got the microphone in there, and I'm getting this story and everything, and I drop, and when I go off the air, the crew chief cussed me out from head to toe, and I said, but Carl, it doesn't matter. It was just, it was my first race. And Carl Edwards and I, our first meeting along the way, and it was just really, really cool to have that. The irony of the world, you know, talk about the interesting irony, talking about Ricky Rudd to win that first race at Pocono. Bobby Hamilton won that truck race, Square D Company was his sponsor, which was part of my past. And I don't know, I just love the irony like that. And we rolled along, 2004 set in, and I got a 33% pay raise, baby. I'm up to $16,000, woohoo! Man, again, went and begged, borrowed, and steal from everybody. But as things would happen with MRN, there was a couple of things going on that really worked to my favor. One of my dear friends, a guy by the name of Winston Kelly. Winston is the executive director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And Winston is still with the network. But at the time, he was with Duke Power. And we had a period of time there in 2003, 2004, where we had a lot of hurricanes in the southeast. And when there was a hurricane, Winston had to stay back in Charlotte and man the headquarters, if you will, for Duke Power. Because I was in Charlotte, which was a hub city for U.S. Airways, I was a very convenient guy to fill in. So I'd be sitting there on a Thursday morning and someone from MRN would call and say, hey, Winston's got a steak. Can you fly to Dover? Yeah. Says, oh, there's a plane ticket waiting for you at the airport. Up to Philly, I would go to Dover. And I think in the course of those two years, 2003 and 2004, I picked up six race weekends because I was in Charlotte, because I was convenient, because I was ready to go, because I had all of this part-time work and I was very flexible and was able to do it. We also had in that time, our veteran reporter, Jim Phillips, he retired at that time. Adam Alexander was another one of our reporters. He made the move to TV, although I worked a few years with Adam. Daniel Humphrey at the time, or Daniel Fry, she also moved on. And so there was a lot of turnover and, and Adam and Danielle were having babies and kids. So I was called every time that someone was having a baby, someone had a doctor's appointment, I was called to fill in and I 
was very, very fortunate in 2003 and 2004 that I picked up a lot of extra work with Motor Racing Network and really was able to kind of carve out a little bit niche. Somewhere around the way 2005, things really started to pick up. I did an audition with NASCAR Performance. At the time, NASCAR had an automotive line. They wanted to do a NASCAR Performance Doris brand Moog chassis parts or Clevite bearings or whatever it was, you know? And so they wanted to do a crew chief show. Larry McReynolds was going to be the co-host of it. It was just determined who was going to be his co-host of it. And I'd gotten along really well with Larry. His son Brandon had ran the summer shootout. Larry and I knew each other fairly well from the garage area and everything and just loved Larry and I thought we could work together well. But their vision of the show was, let's have a bunch of crew chiefs sitting around and talk tech. And we're going to do this on radio. And I thought, okay. And I was able to weasel my way into an audition. I have no technical knowledge at all no skills at all. And I'm sitting there and there's this crew chief turned broadcaster auditioning with Larry and another crew chief turned broadcaster auditioning with Larry and another MRN guy that worked on his own car, shade tree mechanic guy, and me. I wouldn't know a Phillips head screwdriver from a socket wrench, okay? I'm just, that's just, just how I am. And so I did the audition, and the on-air audition went well. Larry and I worked well together. We mock interviewed somebody or did something. And I sat in the meeting afterward, the interview portion of it, and there's old cartoons and I don't know if you've seen it, where the light bulb goes on on the head in the caption of the cartoon. And I don't know where this came from. This is just divine, whatever, whatever it is. I'm sitting there in the meeting, and I said, what you guys envision is crew chief sitting around talking. They said, yes, that's what we want, and that's really what we're concerned about, Steve. You've admitted you don't have much knowledge of the technical end of the sport. And I said, are people going to listen to that? I said, because what happens when those two crew chiefs get talking over everyone's head? And I sat in that room, and I swear to God, I'm watching light bulbs on top of people's heads going off. I'm like, you need an idiot. You need a dummy. You need someone that can get these guys to translate it to English so that people will listen and not drive themselves into bridge abutments trying to figure out what Larry Mack and Chad Knauss are talking about, for God's sake. And I sat there in the room, and I thanked them for their time, and I walked out, and I'm like, son of a gun, I don't know where that came from, but I think that was pretty good. I got back to the hotel, and David Hyatt, the president at the time of MRN, he calls me at the hotel. He says, dude, I don't know where that came from. I think you got the gig. He said, and you were the low man on the totem pole when we went into this thing. He said, you were the one we just slid in there because we liked yeah. And sure enough, I got that gig, NASCAR Performance Live, and we had a 10-year run, which is in radio, a 10-year run is a lifetime. And we had a wonderful experience where Larry, another crew chief, and I would co-host a radio show. And getting to know those crew chiefs and getting to work alongside of them, and they owned it. Guys like Jimmy Elledge and Chad Knauss, and, and those crew chiefs loved coming in and doing NASCAR Performance Live because it was their show. It was a crew chief show. And yeah, there were times I had to slow them down. There were times I had to say, okay, speak English, guys. There were times I had to do it. And we really had a great run. And that really emboldened me in the garage area. I was so fortunate to have that show. And to this day, I have crew chiefs come up. Man, we got to get that show going again. We got to get that crew chief show going again. And that relationship with the crew chiefs, talking about pit road, that relationship. So that when I walk in that garage area on Friday morning, and know those guys. That is gold for what I do with MRN. And that radio show may be one of the best breaks that I ever had in my life in the opportunity to do that show and to sit in the studio for an hour with a crew chief and pick his brain and talk about things and talk about the way things go. As we rolled along, programming on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio kind of came into play as well. And I was able to weasel my way into the midday show, co-hosting with Chocolate Myers. And I don't remember, I tried to find the year of this, but there was one year where I was on the air virtually seven days a week. I know I had one year, the month of May and the month of September, I was on the air every day doing something. And you get to the stage where you're just running yourselves in circles. And you continue on, and I had all of these things happening, and this career is just growing. And along the 
way. I mean, you're interviewing, you're in series, you're at the SEMA show in Vegas doing serious shows where you have Carol Shelby and Guy Fieri sitting there across from me, the diners, drive-ins, and dives guy. And they're both car guys and they're talking about it and Chocolate Myers and, you know, Charlie Daniels swings by and hangs out with us or James Taylor's doing a new concert tour and we have a, I'll never forget, we're in Daytona. We're down there for one of the anniversaries of the Daytona 500 and up comes A.J. Foyt and sits down at our table. And Chocolate Myers, A.J. Foyt, and Steve Post. Talk about who doesn't belong and why. <laughs> okay? We're sitting there talking, hanging out, talking, racing. Just absolutely amazing what was going on and what was happening. When I look at interviewing different drivers, the question always comes up, who are some of your favorites to interview? I'll tell you the one that's always the adventure to interview is Tony Stewart. Tony Stewart, I am telling you, he will mess with you every time. His standard go-to is while you're talking, you've got the microphone, he's tapping the microphone, and you're talking, and it's bouncing off your lip. It's bouncing off your chin, and he does that. But Tony has this trick. Uh, I'll try to describe this in a family-friendly manner here. Tony is part of the Coca-Cola racer, was when he was driving, part of the Coca-Cola racing family of drivers. And that meant during driver intros, he'd always walk around with a Coca-Cola bottle. Well, he would carry this Coca-Cola bottle at about belt height, walk up alongside of you, and one little flick of that Coca-Cola bottle at belt height, he could take your breath away, if you know what I mean. So you'd be standing there interviewing somebody, and the next thing you know, boom, you'd get hit by Tony Stewart, and oh, your breath was gone. Poor Clint Boyer and I are talking to each other. We're standing face-to-face, pre-race. Neither one of us saw it coming. The good news for me is the microphone was over to Boyer. At this point, Tony puts the bottle and did a double flip. (laughs) And he got both of us at the same time. Boyer is there, and I'm not pulling this microphone back because I'm in as bad a shape as you are. And Boyer's there. Tony Stewart's down here with his normal greeting, and I'm like, oh, my God. So the Tony Stewart, he was just that character. And so uh, Boyer got through that interview. I just threw it back to the booth because I couldn't talk. I was breathless and we rolled along. And I would dare say, though, the characters in NASCAR, one of my all-time favorites was Ward Burton. Ward Burton. South Boston, Virginia. Old Ward Burton with the South Virginia draw. Ward had ran for Larry McClure for years and that deal had went away and then two or three years or one year or something later they had kind of revived the deal and they show up at Pocono with a car and Ward is ready to go. He's their driver. He's their guy. We're out on pit road for qualifying and I said hey on the two-way channel or whatever it is let's talk to Ward Burton. We haven't talked to him in a while and you know he's always good to talk to and everyone loves Ward Burton and everything. Ward welcome back to racing. Welcome back. Uh, Good to see you. How did this deal all come together? And hold the microphone over. And Ward starts to talk and a bee starts flying around his mouth. Well, I want to thank Larry McClure for putting this deal together. And he's blowing at the bee because the bee is landing. And we got Runt Pittman running the engine. Runt Pittman building the engines. And we got Joe's Texas sponsoring, I'm losing my mind. My producer's on the radio, what is going on? I can't answer, I'm just holding the microphone. We do also, MRN does the sprint vision, the the vision screens, and later on they told me, the vision people, all you could see was the MRN microphone just doing this, because I'm losing my mind. You talk about church laughs, this interview never 
ended. I am telling you, Ward and this bee had the most persistence I've ever seen in my life because Ward wanted to thank everybody from the guy that cleaned the shop floor and this bee was not leaving him alone and he did a, he had to do that 20 times during the interview. I'm losing my mind. I can't even stand myself right now. And literally when the interview was done, we used that, wow, that's Ward Burden. I just turned the mic off because I couldn't have talked if my life depended on it. And it was an amazing, amazing run and an amazing time in my life doing all of the serious stuff and doing the stuff for Motor Racing Network. And again, the years all kind of run together. Got called into an office, got called into a meeting, and it was with the serious folks. And uh, they had decided that they were going to go in a different direction with the midday show. And face it, nobody likes to hear this. And I didn't want to hear it. I didn't like to hear it. Although I will say this, doing seven days a week and doing everything, I knew that that probably wasn't really good either. And so I was still going to work on Sirius on the weekends, but I was no longer going to do the midday show. And I kind of disagreed with that. I'm not one of those people that really, uh, you know, I told them, okay, when's my last day? I'm not going to be a jackass at the end of it. I'm going to thank everyone for their time and say, Rick Benjamin will join you next week and we'll continue right on. And they were cool. We were all good with it. We all handled it well. And so you're doing it and the NASCAR thing is kind of rolling along and I love what I do for Motor Racing Network. And it's like, okay, all of a sudden I have this big block of time during the middle of the week. And so I started working on some projects beyond NASCAR. And at the time, and it would have been uh, 2010, MRN bought a website called RacingOne.com. And RacingOne.com had chat rooms and fan forums back in the day when that was big time. So they had the fan forums. And we're at a meeting, and they said the number one fan forum on RacingOne.com is Cup Series, Nextel Cup, Sprint Cup. It wasn't Winston Cup then, but probably Nextel Cup or Sprint Cup Series Racing. The number two fan forum is the World of Outlaw Sprint Cars. Does anyone here know anything about the World of Outlaws? And I'll be honest with you, I knew a little bit about the World of Outlaws. My history with sprint car racing was generally not all that good, quite honestly. I grew up here in this area, as I've established, and I would go to the races around. And we had a group up here called the Empire Super Sprints. And the early years of the Empire Super Sprints were not all that pretty at times. The Empire Spin and Stops, I think, were some of the nicknames that they had. And the drivers were perfectly fine, but a track would prepare for the sprint cars by bringing in one push truck. And sprint car racing was not necessarily something that I really enjoyed at that point in my life. But I love dirt track racing. And I'm like, I want to get back to some dirt track racing routes. So what we did that year is we formed what we called the World of Outlaw Report. In 2010, we would just dial up somebody, Steve Kinzer, Sammy Swindell, Donnie Schatz, whoever it was, Jason Myers, Jason Sides. We'd call them up and interview them about the race that they just had. Maybe they won or an upcoming race. And we put together the World of Outlaw Report. And that was 2010. And it was the year of the 50th annual Knoxville Nationals. And the numbers on the World of Outlaw Report to the voice of NASCAR, to MRN, the numbers on the World of Outlaw Report were surprisingly good. I don't know now looking back at it that any of us were shocked, but I think we were all kind of pleasantly surprised by it. So let's do something special for the 50th anniversary of the Knoxville Nationals. Let's do an MRN one-hour show highlighting the Knoxville Nationals. We need to get your co-host. Who are you going to have? Kendra Jacobs. I had worked with Kendra on the Texaco Haviland account. Kenny Jacobs, a legendary sprint car driver from Ohio. His daughter, Kendra. She was working at the time for Penske Racing, so she knew sprint car racing. She's a former Miss Knoxville National. I said she'd be the perfect co-host for this one-hour show. We're just going to do one-off. It's going to be a one-off deal. Kendra and I knew each other. Like I said, we'd work together. We were buds. We were pals. We'd, we'd travel around the country some, so we were really, really good friends with each other called her up she would love the idea of doing it she sat in the studio and we recorded the show we were going to just record it and then air it later on not going to do it live so we sit down and we do the first segment of the show five minutes seven minutes ten minutes whatever it is and this thing is just rolling we are on the same page i mean i've done a lot of radio by this point and i'm sitting there man we are clicking we get to the first break craig moore is our producer of the show craig gets on the private channel kendra how much radio have you done <laughs> she looks at her watch she's about 10 minutes <laughs> 
He says, you're serious, you've never done this before. She says, no, I've never done any of this before. Well, we interviewed Danny Lasoski, we interviewed Brian Brown, and we interviewed Bobby Allen. Bobby would have been the 20th anniversary of Bobby winning the Nationals. I think he won the 30th Knoxville Nationals, so it would have been the 20th anniversary. Obviously, Danny Lasoski and, and Brian Brown was the young gun, Danny's nephew. We interviewed those three. Show went up, and the show blew the doors off. We're like, man, there's something here. There is something here. That was 2010. We sat down during the offseason. We're like, you know, you have the World of Outlaws, which are great, but you have the Pennsylvania Posse, which are not the World of Outlaws, although the World of Outlaws come there. And you've got California, and you've got Ohio, and you've got Knoxville, and you've got Jackson. You've got all of this sprint car racing. Said so we need to be bigger than the World of Outlaw Report. And we came up with a show by the name of Winged Nation. And Winged Nation was born in 2011. Kendra Jacobs and I talking sprint car racing. It has been an absolutely amazing journey along the way. We ended up with an invite to go out and do live shows at the Knoxville Nationals. Wow. Get to go to the Knoxville. The first year I did the Knoxville Nationals, it was opposite of Watkins Glen for the Cup Series. And I'd already committed that I was going to be with MRN Watkins Glen. So the idiot that I am said, we'll do Wednesday and Thursday shows at Knoxville, and then we won't do a Friday and Saturday show. I'll just leave. So I go out to Knoxville for my first time ever, and I arrive in Mecca. I arrive in heaven. Dirt track heaven. Tom Schmay, formerly with the Sprint Car Hall of Fame, he knows what I mean. You walk into the Marion County Fairgrounds for the Knoxville Nationals, and you know that's where you want to be that week in August for the rest of your life. I walked in. We did a live show. Crowd there. Everyone's screaming and hollering. Races go off. Preliminary night one. Just a great night. Come in and do a show on Thursday. Preliminary night number two. Everything is great. Everything is good. And Friday morning... Well, everyone else is all fired up about going to Knoxville. I go to the Des Moines airport to get on a plane to fly Des Moines to Charlotte to Philly to Buffalo to Erie to wherever to wherever to wherever to get to Elmira. I love Watkins Glen, but I have never been in a spot where that was the last place on the planet I wanted to go that day. I was in good company that day. I don't know what exactly was going on. A young lady that many of us know, Erin Crocker, who raced sprint cars and raced World of Outlaw sprint cars. Erin Everton, she was on the board of directors for the Hall of Fame. And something in her world was that she had to leave on Friday morning. And her and I sat in the Des Moines airport and had the biggest pity party that two grown people have ever had in our lives. And we have vowed that that will never, ever happen again. We rolled along. We started doing live shows in Knoxville. In 2015, he called into a real quick meeting at MRN. We got something out here. Someone's fishing around here. So we're going to play around with this a little bit. MAV TV, they want a sprint car show, radio-style talk show covering sprint car racing. And so we're thinking about putting cameras in the studio. And would you guys be into that? Well, yeah, we'll be into that. MAV TV, it's great taking a show to TV. And so sure enough, we ended up doing a separate show for MAV TV, just the logistics of it. And I just take a whole lot of pride in saying that MRN, and I love the Motor Racing Network, I love our NASCAR work, I love what we do. MRN, the voice of NASCAR, our first venture into TV was sprint cars. And I just love that. I just love, I love what we've created with Wing Nation. And it continues on to be just this amazing show that we've built. Kendra has gone on. She is now out at Knoxville doing all the marketing and promotion out there. Erin Everham now, Ray Everham's wife, Erin Crocker. She's my co-host on the show. And I've got another co-host, Ashley Stremme, David Stremme's wife. Her father was Joe Deal, raced at Port Royal. So we have got this show. We do three shows a week and the numbers are unreal. As a matter of fact, this year we hit a milestone. 2017, Wing Nation was the first MRN digital show to clear one million unique 
listeners to our show. It has been unreal. We're now invited to do Knoxville. We did shows at the Jackson Nationals in Jackson, Minnesota. We did shows at the Bob Weikert Memorial in Port Royal. And this Wing Nation stuff just is amazing. And I think it's so amazing about it because when I sat down years ago and had that meeting with Sirius and they told me they no longer wanted me during the middays, I don't know that I was heartbroken. I know I was disappointed. And I look at that meeting and I've talked to Daniel Norwood, the guy at Sirius, and I've thanked him because that door closing opened up this unreal world of sprint car racing that we have now. And it is absolutely amazing to get to do my passion of NASCAR racing, my passion of sprint car racing, and be able to do it all and put it all together. Along the way, I ventured into some other things. I did a food blog. I shared with you that when I was doing the serious stuff, I'd met Guy Fietti, the diners, drive-ins, and dives guy. And we remain in touch now and just kind of once in a while our paths across, but he's just all over the place like I am. But I said, what if we did a NASCAR version of diners, drive-ins, and dives? Like, where are the good places to do in Richmond? And what are the good places to eat here? And who are the good team cooks and, you know, food sponsors and everything else? So for a few years, did a website called foodaroundthetrack.com, and we actually had an MRN podcast called Fast Food. What really happened with it, I was kind of at a crossroads with it, and when that meeting about the map, TV thing happened. I said, well, I think it answered the crossroads. Probably need to put my focus on sprint cars. And so we kind of got out of the food business along the way. Last year, kind of discovered a couple other hidden passions that I didn't realize were there. Lenny Sammons, who does uh, area auto racing news and does indoor TQ racing. So I had the opportunity to start announcing those. I did Allentown and Atlantic City last year. I was able to do Trenton and I'll do Allentown and Atlantic City. Not able to do the Albany race. I'm sorry, I'm going to miss the bus load, but we're in Daytona at that point. And I just found this world of TQ and we did 600 micro racing that is just a wonderful, wonderful place of short track racers just out there slugging it out and I've had so much fun. Along the way last year as well, we have a modified tour, the NASCAR Wheeland type modifieds, the Southern Modified Racing Series. Of course in the South, we have this juggernaut called Bowman Gray Stadium, the Madhouse and it is an amazing place and the Madhouse is a football stadium so they've got to end like in the second week of August because uh, Winston-Salem State plays their football games there. So the Madhouse house is a very short season very compact very exciting it's great great racing those drivers have got with the folks who are in caraway a private tour southern modified racing series and they also promote the north south shootout so found myself getting involved with those folks a little bit and i discovered the asphalt modified again kind of rediscovered it and what an amazing car that is i sat at charlotte motor speedway and there was a modified race there and i was on that little quarter mile track so it's not really a great track for them but i'm watching this and i'm like man these modified cars Wow, they're drastically different than the wing sprint car, but so much the same. Wide tires, engine hanging out all over the place. You know, sprint car has a wing. They have the wide tires and the loud pipes and the noise. And started to do a little work in the modified world. And we've got a project coming up beginning of next year, a little bit more work with a modified tour and going to start doing some of that. And so as we've evolved and as NASCAR has evolved, I love doing the pit road stuff, but have found passion in the other forms of racing. I just had a moment this year, had a couple moments this year, but I had one that just kind of blew me away. The summer shootout, I mentioned that in 1998, I was hired to do the summer shootout. So I roll along and we're on a media tour and one of the executives at Charlotte Motor Speedway says, how long have you been doing the summer shootout? I says, actually, you know what? This is my 20th year of doing the summer shootout. Oh, man, that's really cool. We need to do something with that. We need to do something with that. And I'm like, oh, that's good. That's great. Whatever you guys want to do, I'm here. So we roll along through the summer shootout. I never hear about it. I'm not begging for it. It is what it is. I mean, it's a great idea, but a lot of great ideas fall by the wayside. We get to week number nine, the next to last week. And they said, hey, we want to do something special next week for the season finale. We want you down with Lenny Smiticki as the announcer. He does the trackside stuff. I do the play-by-play. So we want you down to do the pre-race.
grace with that. I said, okay, whatever you guys need, I'll be down there, you know. So I go walking down, and I'm just standing there, minding my own business, talking to the flagger, talking to the officials, and I see a young man behind the stage, a young man by the name of Thomas Van Wingerden. The Van Wingerden family is an amazing family. Tom Van Wingerden was the patriarch of that family. He had a passion for racing that was just amazing. It was Legends Racing at Charlotte. It was what him and his boys did. His boys went and raced on Tuesday nights at Charlotte, and they were all in. They were there to win races. He ran a successful business in town, but they were there to compete hard, and they did racing for all the right reasons. Tom died probably seven or eight years ago in a four-wheeler accident. So sadly, the family had kind of fallen by the wayside as far as racing goes. They still run the business. They're still all very successful, and I follow along with some of them on social media. But I saw Thomas Van Wingerden backstage. I said, that's weird. I haven't seen him at the track all year long. There is an award that is not given out on a regular basis called the Tom Van Wingerden Spirit of the Legend Award. And it is an award that is given not on the basis of what you've done. It is given on the basis of how you've done things and that passion, that spirit. And I'm standing there and all of a sudden it strikes me that I'm getting ready to go on the stage and get the Tom Van Wingerden Spirit of the Legend Award. And I am telling you, I've been blessed with so many honors in this sport, with so many things that have happened along the way. But getting that award in August of this year for who I am, the Tom Van Wingerden Spirit Award was the highlight. It's the best award because it was how I present myself. I love racing. I don't know if I can tell. I know I'm a little shy. I know I'm a little reserved. I know I don't really come out of my bubble, but I love racing. Legends cars on Tuesday night at the Daytona 500 and everything between. I love it. And to get that award was just absolutely amazing. And it's just really, really touched my heart. But I upped that this week. I did something this week that is even, in my opinion, better than that. I was at Eldora Speedway doing the uh, truck series race. And I shared with you back an hour, hour and 15 minutes ago, my favorite driver was Pete Cordes. I've never met Pete Cordes as an adult. I was a fan of his as a kid, but I'd never met Pete Cordes as an adult. I'm at Eldora, I'm doing some hospitality. I'm there hanging out and some guy comes up and says, hey, I remember you from Five Mile Point. You used to watch Chuck Akulis and Carl Nagel and those guys race. And I said, yeah, man, those are the days. He said, man, I used to live right nearby to Pete Cordes. And I said, oh my God, that was my guy. Pete Cordes, that's my guy. And he said, man, he's doing great, doing really, really well. And you know, we're, we're our older race car drivers. We don't know. I hadn't read that Pete had passed or anything, but you just never know. And I'm like, wow, that's great to hear. He's doing well. He's doing great. I got thinking to myself, I said, how many people get to meet their heroes? How many times when we're a kid, whether it's a baseball hero or football hero or racing hero, do we get a chance to meet our hero? And as Kip and I were putting this together, I said, you know what? Why don't I come up a little bit early? And why don't I go see if I can meet my hero? I'm at Knoxville. I'm out there getting ready for the Nationals. Pete and I had started to email back and forth and started to talk a little bit back and forth about it. In 1975, Pete was involved in a crash at Five Mile Point Speedway. And I was an 11-year-old kid, a Pete Cordes fan, and he broke his back in that crash at Five Mile Point Speedway. Being the fan that I was, I was able to reach out and send a letter to Pete and send him a note. And I'm there in Knoxville Raceway. We had just kind of emailed back and forth and broached that conversation about, hey, I'm coming up there in December. I'd love to take you and Judy to dinner to meet you. You're my childhood hero. I would love to meet Pete Cordes. I'm pulling into Knoxville. I get an email from Pete Cordes, and in that email is a picture, and in that picture is this card. Dear Pete, I am one of your fans, and I saw you Saturday night, and hope you get well. I will miss the blue number 68 at Five Mile Point, your fan, Steve Post. 
How cool is that for your hero to save it? Isn't that amazing? He sent me that. Steve Post, RD2 Halstead, Pete Cordes, modified stock car driver, Sydney, New York. I found the zip code, 10 cent stamp. I'm pulling into Knoxville Raceway. I get an email from Pete Cordes, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and I open this up, and I started to cry. My passion, my hero, had saved this letter from an 11-year-old kid that his bigger-than-life hero had suffered a backbreak at a race. Blown away by this, I was able to reach out and to make this even better, I landed in Syracuse, jumped in the rental car, made the haul over to Sydney, and on Thursday night at 4.30, I did dinner with my hero, Pete Cordes, and his wife, Judy. To meet your hero, the guy that saved your letter as an 11-year-old kid, I'm happy to report, a lot of times when you meet your heroes, they may disappoint. As we live in this age of social media, we learn way more about our heroes than we need to know about them. We all have warts, we all have bad times, we all have little hiccups along the way. My hero, Pete Cordes, when I was an 11-year-old kid, was bigger than life. My hero, Pete Cordes, as a 53-year-old man, is bigger than life times 10. An amazing man, an amazing man. This guy built his race cars from bumper to bumper built his engines from bottom to ground up, raised three kids, had a successful career at Bendix, raced that modified three or four nights a week, depending on what the tracks were, and did it all while raising that family and while doing everything. Pete Cordes, 30 years ago, found out he had cancer in his arm, had some failed procedures done, and has lost his right arm to cancer. His wife shared with me something that just blew me away. And part of the reason he lost his arm was maybe some faulty diagnosis from some doctors or some faulty treatments. The day after he lost his arm, he went home and he got up the next morning and Judy walks out and Pete Cordes is sitting at the table learning how to write left-handed. Unreal. He still changes brakes on his own cars. He says it's amazing what you can do with vice grips and some leverage with only one arm and it's your weak arm. He claims and I, I was just, he claims he's smarter because he says the, the whole left brain, right brain thing. And he was right-handed, so his left brain was very engaged, but now that his left hand is the primary hand, and he says, I have so many ideas I wish I could have done as a race car. I'm like, why didn't you think of that? Why didn't you think of that? What I learned was that he was so smart with chassis setups, and then it was bigger tires on the right front, bigger tires and bars here and everything like that. And on Thursday evening, I had a two-and-a-half-hour visit with my hero. As I mentioned, bigger than life as a kid and bigger than a lifetime's 10. I met my hero, Pete Cordes. And that is just an amazing, amazing night that I will never forget. And the good news is we're going to meet again next time I'm up. He may even come to a NASCAR race along the way. I just cherish that relationship. So that's really my story. Steve Post, race fan, little kid that grew up at Five Mile Point Speedway, loved racing. Little kid that used to sit around in matchbox cars and mimic the announcers. A single dad with two kids and just love my daughters to death, teenage girls. Love my desk. I'm a radio broadcaster, but ultimately just a kid from Halstead, Pennsylvania that decided to pursue my dream after some bumps and hurdles and misturns along the way. And I got, I caught that dream. And I'm really, really proud of where I've been at and where I've come to. And I just appreciate the opportunity today to share my story with you. And I thank you for coming out and listening here today. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you in part by the International Motor Racing Research Center. Its charter is to collect, share, and preserve the history of motorsports, spanning continents, eras, and race series. The center's collection embodies the speed, drama, and camaraderie of amateur and professional motor racing throughout the world. 
the center welcomes serious researchers and casual fans alike to share stories of race drivers, race series, and race cars captured on their shelves and walls and brought to life through a regular calendar of public lectures and special events. To learn more about the center, visit www.racingarchives.org. This episode is also brought to you by the Society of Automotive Historians. They encourage research into any aspect of automotive history. The SAH actively supports the compilation and preservation of papers, organizational records, print ephemera and images to safeguard, as well as to broaden and deepen the understanding of motorized, wheeled land transportation through the modern age and into the future. For more information about the SAH, visit www.autohistory.org. We hope you enjoyed another awesome episode of Break Fix Podcast, brought to you by Grand Tory Motorsports. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or get involved, be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Grand Touring Motorsports. And if you'd like to learn more about the content of this episode, be sure to check out the follow-on article at gtmotorsports.org. We remain a commercial-free and no annual fees organization through our sponsors, but also through the generous support of our fans, families, and friends through Patreon. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can get access to more behind-the-scenes action, additional pit stop minisodes, and other VIP goodies, as well as keeping our team of creators fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gumby Bears, and Monster. So consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without you, none of this would be possible.